good morning again. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here at Church of the City. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We are really grateful to be with you. This morning as we gather, um, we are pretty unapologetic about a few things. And, and one thing in particular, that we have a single focus as a church community. It isn't a service. It isn't a sermon. It isn't worship. It isn't even the Bible. Our one and only focus is Jesus of Nazareth. This human being looking like us, living like us, becoming like us, who made one amazing claim, that he was more than human, that he was actually God in flesh and bones. And the rest of what we have, the Bible, sermon, worship service, they are all intended to pull us towards the centricity of, of what he is, who he is, and what he claimed to be. And for us, we're holding to it being more than a claim, that it wasn't just a person pretending or someone who was insane, but somebody who actually was the incarnate, flesh and bones version of God. Now for us, the reason we put that out front oftentimes is simply just not to be misunderstood. Um, there are a lot of things that we could focus on as a church, a lot of things that we could say, this is our one thing, this is who we are. There are so many things that flow out of, that come out of the reality of God showing up on earth. But we have to hold to that centerpiece. It is the center of what this church is and what it will continue to be. This morning, um, what you have been invited into is another moment where you share airspace with other people who are wrestling with that reality, wrestling with Jesus, whether or not his claims were true, and whether or not you are in a spot in your life, in your world, to start following his ways, to surrender your belief about what you think is best in the world and exchange it for what he said was best for you and best for the world around you. So for us as a church, that is who we are. That is our central identity. And as such, for us, we are super committed to the scriptures. The Bible is central to us because it is the access point for us in, in living detail of what God is up to. And if you remember, if you've been around Church of the City at all, um, for us, we have a, an idea, at least a working idea of what the scriptures are. The scriptures, the Bible, is the intersection between the human story and God's activity. That God is doing something. He has been doing something. And it started well before we were conscious and aware. And it included the creation of all things, the creation of us, and the sustaining of humanity and all the things we need to be human. But there's this, this unique place, kind of like where a tire hits the pavement, where they intersect, where there's just this contact patch between what God is doing and who we are. And, and I think for a lot of us, the strange part to that is we feel often like God's world, his existence, his activities don't really intersect my world, my life. And many of you have talked with many of you, you're on some kind of journey where you're pursuing, trying to figure out where is God's activity? What is, what is God up to in my world, in my life? What is he up to in Portland? What is he up to in my family or my friends or my coworkers or my neighbors' lives? And it can be a little challenging at times to try to figure that out. But one of the tragedies I believe to be the case of I think largely among people who have 
um, either been dissatisfied with the American church or who have um, altogether rejected it because of some baggage they have. Our children, by the way, if you're curious about what the elephants are upstairs. Um, by the way, um, I have a four-year-old, the loudest person in our house walking across the floor <laughs> is my four-year-old, all heels, all the way, even barefooted. Um, what we have in the scriptures is this opportunity to again see the place where God is doing something with people. And it feels like in the American church, a lot of us, as we've either been frustrated by it or as we've from a distance said, I don't want anything to do with that, what we've missed is we have missed the fact that God has been working among people for a long time. And that hasn't changed. And so it, I think importantly, it drives us back to the scriptures, back to the times when we could see this, this interaction in vivid detail. And where we are right now in the scriptures is we are in this letter from a friend of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends. You've probably heard his name before. His name's John. He, he portrays himself as he writes the story of Jesus. Remember, he's one of the authors of one of our Gospels. And he, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved, kind of as this like pseudonym of like, I, I'm, I need to take a step back from Jesus. I'm close with him, and I want to take like a third perspective view of this whole storyline. But he, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. And I think it was mutual. There's a deep intimacy shared between these two people. And as such, as Jesus' life unfolds and as he goes towards the cross and as he's resurrected and as he ascends into heaven and leaves things in the hands of his coworkers, of his friends, John is one of those who takes so seriously what his role on earth is. And it seems like as it comes out in the writing of what we call 1 John, this letter, we get this perspective from John that he absolutely wants every human being on earth to understand who Jesus is, to understand that intersection point between God and people, and to understand it as one thing, the arrival of Jesus on earth. That this is the place where God radically changes the whole story. Remember, God is safe, he's secure, he's insulated from our pain, from our suffering, from our sin, from death, and yet he chooses to come into the story. And John sees it firsthand. John has his front row view of all of it. And it seems like the rest of the trajectory of his life is defined by trying to invite other people into this intimacy that he experienced with Jesus. But all through his writings, he uses language like, dear friends, dear children, my beloved. He wants people to be included. And he says over and over and over again through this writing, here are the reasons I'm writing to you. And where we just were two weeks ago, is we're in the spot where he's being so honest. I'm writing to you because it matters. I'm writing to you because you need to know who Jesus is. Then we get to this, this passage that we're in this week. This passage where he begins to articulate what kind of difference it makes when we intersect the life of Jesus. Go ahead and open your Bible. We're in 1 John. If you have a print Bible, it's near the very end. If you have it on your phone, then just scroll until you find it. Um, but we're in 1 John chapter 2, the very, very tail end of chapter 2, and then getting into chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we provide uh, the text for you on the screen so you can follow along up there as well. We're going to take this a little bit slow this morning, just piece by piece. It starts this way, verse 28, chapter 2. And now, dear children, I love the way he phrases this. He's just in love with the people he's writing to. 
And maybe it's just me like reading into it, but vicariously, I feel the love from him. As if he's writing into the future, into our story, into Portland, into your life and my life, with this, this heart of a, of a shepherd, a pastor, a person who's close with Jesus. And now, dear children, continue in him, that's Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him, before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, put your finger there for a second or pause. Or don't flip the next screen if you're looking on your telephone. I don't even know what to say. I used to like always like put your finger there, but like so few of us actually have print Bibles. Putting your finger there probably wouldn't help because the screen would do something you don't want it to do. I digress. Pause for a moment here. What John is saying here as he begins this next section is that there's something now that is happening. And it's anticipating something that is coming. And now, dear children, continue in him. Stay where you are. Stay close. Be attached to Jesus because something is going to happen. Now, John is this kind of circular thinker. We've been over this before. Remember, he's first century, ancient Near East, Jewish mind. He thinks like in a slinky, right? Where it's in a circle. It's going somewhere. He's going to revisit the same ideas. Now, several times in the writing so far, he's alluded to something that is coming. The arrival of Jesus, which... In the context of the first century Christian community, there was a lot of anticipation around it. But for some of you and some of us, it, it's a little bit foggy and fuzzy, this whole concept of Jesus returning again. I think in the American Christian narrative, it's there, right? We, we talk about it. We have a term for it called eschatology. We, we debate about it. We get angry over it. We divide over it. We have church fights over it. And yet, for John, his point here isn't to get into the weeds of it, but simply to state the reality in the anticipation that it's happening, Jesus will return. We will see him again. This isn't the last of the story. He didn't leave us permanently. So that when he appears, we may be confident. Now, John's instruction isn't unique here. He's been doing this through the whole letter. Stay attached to Jesus. Stay attached to Jesus. And now he's framing it just a little bit differently. Stay attached so that when he appears, you will be confident that you are with him, that he is with you, and that you are connected. Now, this idea is where John moves to this next section of the text. And, and I want to go kind of slow here, even though we have a short amount of time this morning. I want to take this line by line simply because what John does here gets a little bit confusing, and I think as a piece of scripture, this is one of those that could easily be misused and misunderstood. So humbly, I want to offer a journey through this in brief. Pick the text back up in verse 1. So John says this, see, which is a term like hear or know or, or observe or just pay attention to something. See is this like transitional, like you need to have a perspective here that I've got of you. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, this is his starting point, okay? This whole concept, yes, you're going to see Jesus again, stay in him, so you have confidence when you see him. But now he's back to some basics. You have to, what he says, you have to see yourself the way that God sees you. As someone who has committed and surrendered to the ways of Jesus, 
who has walked down the road with him, who has confessed, who has prayed, who has committed, who has been baptized, who is discipled by Jesus, who's walking down this road with him, you have a new identity. And your identity is a child of God. Now, now John is Jewish, right? Remember this. That phrase, child of God, was reserved for one people group and one people group only up until the arrival of Jesus. And it was his people. It, it was his sons and daughters through Abraham. It was the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, whatever term you want to use. It was one family group. And here John is making it super clear that's not the entrance point. To be a child of God is to come through Christ, to stay attached to him. You have a new identity. Now, hold on to that. Now, John, like I said, he's a circular thinker, and this is hard on us because we're linear thinkers. So I'm putting the next phrase in parentheses for you because it's parenthetical. It's intended to be. It's, his mind drifts into another concept that he gets to a lot, and we'll get to it in upcoming passages a bit more, but just pay attention to what he says. And this is what we are. Fantastic. New identity. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Fantastic. That's true. There's a difference between us being children of God and people who are not yet children of God or who would say, I don't ever want to be a child of God. I'm not interested in any of that. There's something distinct about that. And he has more to say on that. We'll come back to it in future pieces of scripture through his writing. But just tuck it away. He drifts for a second and then he returns this idea of what our identity is. In verse two, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Now, I don't always bold scripture because I just have a hard time uh, overemphasizing parts that maybe weren't intended to be emphasized, but I think there's something going on here that needs to be pointed out in John's thinking. You are a child. That's your identity. That is what you are in the present, in the here and now, not waiting for someday in the future. New identity, access to Christ, beautiful hope. And something is still yet to come. This whole idea of seeing Jesus again, of his arrival again, of some kind of contact with him again, leaves a wide open mystery for what will come of us. What will happen to us? What, what will that intimacy entail? Where is this all headed? And John lays that out. Now you are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. There's still more growth to happen, more transformation, more development, more of your identity that you will discover as you stay close with Jesus. Now, this point, I think, is one we need to stop on for one second. Because, like I said in brief a moment ago, we get so focused and riled up over the details of the second coming of Jesus that we would, we would choose to divide over it. Do I think this is an important topic to talk about? Yes, absolutely. Do I think that we have enough knowledge to be angry, belligerent, and divisive with that? No, I don't. In fact, I think it goes directly against the grain of what Jesus instituted in John 17 when he prayed for us as a Christian community living out our faith on earth. He prayed that we would remain unified. The fact that we use Jesus himself as a means to divide is tragic. What John says here is the central reality is 
you have new identity. That is happening now, and there's still more to come. Now, back in uh, a phase of life where I was really struggling, so I've shared a lot of these details with you in the past, struggling with my faith. I was in seminary. I was thinking about leaving faith entirely. Um, I had been given a full-ride scholarship from the church I was working for to go to seminary, and I was in huge amounts of conflict internally, just wrestling with the ideas of, of God and the ideas of me and what it all amounted to. And I remember this, this conversation I had with a professor of mine who was a very good friend at this point. Um, he, had, he had just really done um, a really good job loving me personally and loving my wife and walking with me through my doubts and questions and reservations. And we got to a spot in our relationship where he admitted, hey, Russell, I'm not going to be able to resolve your doubts. It's between you and Jesus. And that was really, really healthy for me. And so we were, happened to be at lunch one day. It wasn't really about anything detailed wise, but we were just having lunch. And um, for some reason, John, that's his name, ironically, same as uh, the author of this section, John said, have you heard about the now and not yet? And I said, no. And he said, well, let me, let me tell you about it. The now and not yet is this, that Jesus has arrived and he's brought his kingdom and it has begun to emerge on earth. It is here now. It is present, it is active, it is powerful, and it's changing things. But the world is still a mess. He has arrived. His kingdom has come, but it is not yet complete. What is yet to come, the not yet of it is our anticipation of something better more complete, more full. And he used a word that has stuck with me since and has become a huge part of my journey with God. Hope. He said, hope changes everything. What began emerging in me was a reality that my intellectual doubts were legitimate, but what I actually had going on was a cynical mindset. So I looked at the world around me, I thought there's just no way God could be a part of this because it's so broken. It's so tragic. And what my friend and mentor and professor was trying to say to me is what John is saying right here. That we have a new identity and life is still hard. Things are still broken. You are a child of God and sin is still real. And people still violate you. And you still make mistakes. People still die. You are held deeply by the God who created you. Safely and securely. But the world's still broken. So our hope isn't complete in what we experience right now. This is now. You are a child of God. And yet we have hope. We anticipate What's coming next? And John presses on. He finishes that thought and says this, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. I don't know about you, 
the concept of hope, the thought of something better than right now, at times is completely overwhelming. I remember driving from Boise, Idaho to Seattle, Washington. It's, it's about an eight hour drive. And I was going because one of my closest friends was in the hospital and her mom had called and said, you need to come if you want to see her again before she passes. As I'm making the drive from Boise to Seattle, on regular occasions, I had to stop because I was crying so hard I couldn't drive safely. And I, I pulled over in this one spot. And if you've ever driven through um, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, um, it's dry and arid and just kind of raw landscape. And it was not at a time of the season. It was uh, end of winter when it was just cold and it was miserable. And it had been overcast for just days and days and days and days. And I pulled over in this, this stretch in eastern Oregon um, on the side of the highway in my little 1988 Honda Civic. And I got out of my car and I just started walking up the road. No point, no idea what I was doing or looking for. I just knew I, I couldn't drive, I needed to calm down. And I was walking and starting to catch my breath. I've had these moments before where they just feel like a movie, but you're, you're kind of like cynical of it actually being anything other than just happenstance when the clouds just kind of broke apart and the sun started shining through the clouds. And I remember this, this sensation of more, just, more than it just being beautiful. I remember this moment of really sensing that there is more to this world than the pain I was feeling right then. You had those glimmers when you can almost imagine what eternity is like. And that concept of what is to come is so powerful and so present that it actually comes into your experience, your life in the moment. I think that's what John's driving at here. I think that's the epicenter of his theology of what's to come, of the appearance of Christ is that it is intended to give us a little bit of hope in the middle of a lot of pain. See, I think that for most of us, for, for I would say maybe all of us, our experiences with the brokenness of this life at times or quite often overwhelm us. They are the things that become pervasive and begin to define us. Your crummy experiences, the things people have done to you, your experiences with the church doing things in the name of God. And what John is saying here is that's not your identity. Your identity is as a child of God. And your hope is not in the broken parts of life. Your hope is in the one who can make it all new again. The one who started everything to begin with the one who made it whole to start with, and the one who walked into our story in order to offer wholeness again. See, as I read John, as I read his letter, I'm struck that what he wants is the exact same thing that Jesus wanted when he showed up on earth. He wants us to know who we are and he wants us to know who God is. 
We're going to stop here with the text. We have more we could walk through, and it all kind of joins the next section, and we're short on time, so I'm going to, just going to pause here for today. If you've been in a spot in your world where you'd say your life has been defined more by your pain than anything else, then please, let John's words begin to reframe your definition of who you are. You are not your pain. You are not even your sin. You are not your brokenness or your shame or your guilt. You are loved by the God who made you. And our hope is not in our ability to make all this right again, to undo all the damage that's been done to us or by us. Our hope is in God and God's ability to love us into hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, you, uh, goodness, you are such a good lover of your people. The thought that you would even consider leaving all of that safety and comfort behind for our benefit. It's, it's just mind-bending. God, help us again. And maybe for the first time. I don't know. Help us see how loved we are by you. Help us see where our hope really is. God, help us see that you view us as your child. And that you have more in store than this crummy story that we're in right now at times. Hope is a dangerous thing. Because it has the power to change everything. God, please change everything. We need that. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.